Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 77, The Situation in the 13th Century and Vengeance in Florence. Well, here we are in the new phase that follows a recap episode. Let me take a moment for a bit of podcast admin. First of all, for the Patreon supporters, I'm currently working on a new feature called In the Time It Takes, in which, in the time it takes to do things, such as drive or walk from one place to another, I answer listener questions and make other considerations. For those not on Patreon, now is a great time to join. This feature will be added to the other content there, such as News Cappuccino, a review of the latest news from Italy, from around the world, and just some general considerations on life. The current episode of News Cappuccino is called The Culinary Wisdom of Grandpa Pig. As well as the audio content, you will also find videos dedicated to supporters and little mini-documentaries on Italian locations. For example, this weekend we are heading to Pompeii and Naples, so look forward to some content on that trip. Finally, we have launched a competition. Send in your favourite quotes from A History of Italy episodes, or quotes you think would be good on A History of Italy, and we'll put them on merchandise, which we are planning to create. The winners will receive said merchandise, as will the Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level supporters. So send in those quotes. Let's try and get them by the first day of spring, the 21st of March. Now, back to the 13th century. We have said more than once that the characteristic factor in Italy after the year 1000, was the rise of the independent city-states that came to be known as communes. Not that this didn't happen elsewhere in Europe, but in Italy they had particular room to grow. You could trace the start of some of these all the way back to the fall of the Western Roman Empire, but they started to take a measurable form in the late 11th century, when they first elected consuls. They then started to find that the consuls elected from some of the more prominent families and from rising groups of merchants and artisans, didn't help settle some of the sometimes violent infighting among factions in cities. The cities started to realise that perhaps they needed power to be concentrated in the hands of a single figure that could act impartially in the face of conflicting family and factional interests. And so... As the 12th century ended and the 13th progressed, the figure of the podesta, that's P-O-D-E-S-T with an accent on the A, with a stress on the A, was affirmed. This was a single administrator and magistrate who would rule over the city for a limited period of time, usually one to two years and sometimes even less. In time, he would be called from other cities, once again, to try and maintain impartiality. It basically became a profession one could practice, a professional city administrator, to the point that, 
by the mid-1200s, there were cases of handbooks for the position. Some example of these could be the Liber de Regimini Civitatis by Giovanni da Viterbo and the De Regimine et Sapientia Podestatis, Orfino da Lodi, both in a form of Latin and not local Italian, which was developing at the time. They're perhaps not as interesting a read as Machiavelli's prints, but they are an interesting look into how cities in this period were run. The statutes of the city administration also changed as the form and the needs changed, with legal experts called reformatores or correctores being called in to do the work, which is an indication of the spread of universities and the lawyers they came from, such as the great legal tradition of the city of Bologna. Obviously, things didn't develop the same way all over Italy. In some cities, the move to the Podestà was followed by a move back to the consuls, only to then try the Podestà again. In some cases, the move was slower. In some, the Podestà was chosen among the consuls as a primus inter pares, the first among equals. In other cases, he would come from the same city, in others from a different city. In some situations, there were clashes with the bishops, who were also political figures and landowners, and in other cities, the authorities got along with the bishop. In some cities, such as Assisi, the rising merchant class threw out the nobles, and in others, the commune grew in harmony with them as they became part of the administration. This was further complicated by the fact that not everyone everywhere had a very clear idea about who was a noble and who wasn't. For example, in Perugia, it was enough for you to be a knight, i.e. having gone through the expensive ceremony of having been made a knight by another knight or higher rank. At this time, you received the honour of being called Messere, Dominus in Latin, something like my lord, and you were allowed to sit on benches at public gatherings rather than on the floor. Incidentally, people spent a lot of time outside because there were as yet not enough really large buildings to hold great assemblies, such as the Arengo, the assembly of all the people of a commune. At this point, the man who was considered a noble in Perugia would be rather disappointed if he then travelled to Florence, where the doctors of the law were a bit more picky and wouldn't had considered him a noble since he didn't come from one of the old aristocratic noble families. The question of nobility is interestingly exemplified by a court case in the city of Arezzo in Tuscany, involving the descendants of one Ughetto di Sarna, and the monastery of Santa Fiora. The monastery claimed that Ughetto's inheritance, as well as the heirs themselves, belonged to the monastery, because Ughetto himself had been a serf there who had managed to escape. Witnesses were called in to testify on the matter, and they said that he couldn't have been a serf, he was a nobleman. When they were further asked how they knew he was a nobleman, they said, well, Everybody said he was. When pressed further on the matter, 
they would point to the fact that he had a horse and a sword. It sort of reminds me of the scene in Monty Python's Holy Grail when King Arthur is identified as being a king because he doesn't have poo all over him. Poo was not the word they used, but I don't want to have to put the little explicit button on my podcast. In the end, it turns out that Ughetto di Sarno was an escape serf who had made his way to the city, managed to make a living and then a fortune and buy himself a knighthood. This goes away to disproving the myth of a rigid social structure in the Middle Ages with an interesting example of social mobility, at least in some areas. It's quite ironic that, in this case, there was an attempt to demonstrate one's belonging to the noble class, when, towards the end of the century, for example in Florence, men would go out of their way to try and prove they weren't noble because the nobles were being kicked out of the administration and even exiled from the city. Dante Alighieri, the great Italian poet and writer of the Divine Comedy, whom I will have time to talk about, was involved in the politics of Florence, and when lists were being compiled of nobles to exile, he happily voted for a motion that defined nobles as those having at least a knight in their family in the last 20 years. He was pleased to vote on this motion after he had been a lot less enthusiastic about a previous version in which someone was defined as a noble if they had had a knight in the family in the last 30 years, and this would have included an ancestor of Dante himself, making him a noble. In the end, he was kicked out anyway, when, after the Guelphs of the city had ousted the Ghibellines, they had no one else to fight against, and so they divided into the Black Guelphs and the White Guelphs, and when Dante found himself on the wrong side of the divide, being a White Guelph, he ended up being exiled anyway. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but the example is useful to go back to the whole Guelphs and Ghibellines issue. It had started out in Italy as a dividing line between the pro-imperial faction, the Ghibellines, and the pro-papal faction, the Guelphs. We saw, for example, how the passing of the city of Parma from the Ghibellines to the Guelphs had led to the Battle of Parma and the defeat of Emperor Frederick II. This was an example of how the factions not only divided one city from another, but also divided factions within the cities themselves. The division then evolved into a social one. The Ghibellines were the traditional aristocratic families in the city, and the Guelphs were the new popular classes of merchants, artisans, lawyers and notaries. Obviously popular never meant the poor plebs. In time, the two labels became devoid of meaning and were simply used to divide cities into factions along a whole different series of criteria. Indeed, with the same ideas and positions, you could be a Ghibelline in one city and a Guelph in another. The division between the two factions has an interesting origin story in Florence, although we're not sure how much truth there is to it and what connection it may have to the factions. It all started with a big party in January of 1216. 
Mazingo Tegrini de Mazingi, you don't need to remember that name, had been made a knight. Cavaliere in Italian. And when that happened, you were supposed to give a big party. Everyone who was in with the in crowd in Florence and around Florence was there. Among these were two noblemen. Odoarrigo, let's call him Odo, dei Fifanti, and Buondelmonte dei Buondelmonti. What a name that one is. After a bit of messing around during the banquet with a plate being stolen, other plates of meat being chucked in people's faces, and accusations flying, an actual fight broke out at the end of the banquet when the plates were being cleared away, in which Juan del Monte took out a knife and wounded Odo in the arm. Social norms now required some sort of reparation. There was a meeting at the house of the wounded man Odo Arrigo with his family and other allied families. Among those were the Amidei and the Lamberti. The solution was, as often is the case, to set up a reparatory marriage. Juan del Monte was to marry a niece of Odo and member of the Amidei family. Juan del Monte accepted the proposal and everything was put down on paper in front of a notary who set out a fine in case things didn't go according to plan. Everything now seemed hunky-dory, easy as pie, all fair and square. Then in comes stage left, Gualdrada Donati, another Florentine noblewoman who came along and told Juan del Monte that he was a total chicken for giving in to the pressure and accepting to marry a woman who, frankly, was no way as pretty as her daughter. She even offered to pay the fine for the breach of contract. Before you could understand what was happening, hey presto, on the 10th of February 2016, the day in which he was supposed to marry his Amidei fiancée, there was Bondelmonte dei Bondelmonti announcing his engagement to a Donati. What's worse, as he entered Florence, he passed quite close to the church where his intended bride-to-be stood waiting for him in vain. At this point, the insult cried out for revenge. A meeting was called of the Amidei family and their allies at the church of Santa Maria Sopra Porta. The idea was to find some sort of corporal punishment, such as a good beating or even a wound to the face that would leave a scar. It is at this point that one of the friends of the family, Mosca dei Lamberti, stood up and uttered the decisive and famous phrase Cosa fatta capo a? which literally means a thing done has a head or a start. Now I have spent quite a bit of time on various sources that interpret this famous sentence and although I really don't get it, I'll trust their understanding of 13th century Italian more than mine. I always struggled a bit with my Dante at school. Basically, what is done is done and cannot be undone and calls for 
as Caiaphas says in Jesus Christ Superstar, a more permanent solution to our problem. The ambush and killing was to take place on the day of Buon del Monte's wedding. On Easter morning, the day set for the wedding, Buon del Monte entered Florence across the Ponte Vecchio. As he passed the Santa Maria Gate and the Amide Tower, he was first insulted and then knocked off his horse with a club. Once on the ground, he was finished off with a hammer. The Amade were obviously accused, and with them sided the Uberti and Lamberti, whose property could be found between Ponte Vecchio and Piazza della Signoria in Florence. They became the Ghibelline faction. As always, you don't have to remember all the names. However, you might want to put a pin in the families that sided with the Bondelmonti, whose property lay between Via del Corso and Porta San Pietro, if you know anything about Florence. And these were the Guelphs. Aside from the aforementioned Donati, which would become one of the most important noble families in Florence, they were joined by a family by the name of Pazzi. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini-level supporters, Aaron W., Benjamin, Deborah S., Eric, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Paul, Scott, Thomas, and YR, the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei-level, Andrew, Anthony, Silane, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Greg, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Reactionary Venetian, Roberta, Rodney, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent. And the tippy-top, Maria Montessori, and Dante Alighieri, there he is, Level, Sen, Paolo, and Lisa Kay. Remember, you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, or via social media, we are on Facebook and Twitter at ahistoryofitaly.com, if you just want to say hello, ask questions, or put in an entry for the quote competition. If you're feeling really generous on the website, under the support page, you can support the show by donating on PayPal, or buying your copy of The K-Rock Chelsea Hotel by myself and a colleague of mine. If you're really feeling generous, then you can become a Patreon supporter and have access to all kinds of extra content. Until next time, thanks again very much to everyone for listening, and arrivederci. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. 
and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.